It's Monday, March the 15th. I'm Mike Duran on today's Guardian Daily. Conviction in rape cases is not the be-all and end-all. That's the verdict of a report into how the courts should deal with rape victims. If we are putting all our enthusiasm and all our energy into what you can do in the courtroom, we are going to be neglecting the human being who's left at the end of it. With education cutbacks looming, university vice-chancellors stand accused of having their snouts in the trough. At the back of it all, there has been a generous flow of state funding. Some of this money appears to have gone into fattening up the wallets of top academics. Panic on the streets of Georgia amid claims that its president, Mikhail Saakashvili, has been killed by invading Russian troops. Turns out to be a TV spoof. It was a pretty serious hoax that had spooked not only me, but half of the Georgian population. Plus, we paint an audio picture in your ear as 500 volunteers light up the length of Hadrian's Wall. We start today with a landmark review into the handling of rape complaints. Report author Baroness Stern says we should step back from focusing on conviction rates and instead give equal weight to care and support of victims, whether or not the case goes to trial. Currently, the legal system is only concerned with getting a result through the courts, but victims have other concerns, such as the impact on their and their families' lives. Baroness Stern has been telling The Guardian's Rachel Williams about her findings. There's so much discussion about the conviction rate. Much of it is very unrelated to the statistics as they are published. The conviction rate of people who are charged with rape is 58%. Well, it's over half. Considering the difficulties of these cases where... You're never going to get evidence like you can identify the suspect, the DNA is there, that's it. You can't do that. That is a sign that the system's working very hard. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I've seen the system working very hard. If everyone did it well, that would go up a bit. But it's never going to be 90%. I mean, conviction rate for robbery is 65%. It's never going to be considerably higher as long as it operates within our legal system. Therefore, we have to make sure we look at the whole situation of rape victims, that we don't say the interesting thing for us is whether there's a conviction or not. We say we're concerned about you and what's happened to you, and we want to make sure that you are helped to recover, and we want to make sure that, where possible, the criminal justice route can be followed. I just think we want a different balance, that's all. Reading through the report and talking to you, it does seem that what you're advocating is a fairly major shift in the way that we look Mm. at rape and and outcomes from from the reporting of rape um, to an idea that the conviction, that the amount of convictions aren't aren't the be-all and end-all. Is that the right way to look at it? In my view, it is absolutely the right way to look at it, to say that the amount of convictions are not the be-all and end-all. And I think that's actually a completely unacceptable position because you're talking here about a person who's been harmed. To respond to that harm is a lot more than what the criminal justice system can do. Sarah Payne said that in her report, Redefining Justice, very well. All they're interested in is whether they can get a result through the criminal justice system. But as the victims say, what about me? What about what's happened to me? What about whether I have to move house or not? What about the fact that I can't go out at night because I keep thinking about what might happen? What about my children who... I find they've got a completely paranoid mother. That is as much the responsibility of the state when dealing with such a serious violent crime to think about. People have to be helped.
to recover from the hurt. If we are putting all our enthusiasm and all our energy into what you can do in the courtroom, which is absolutely important, we are going to be neglecting the human being who's left at the end of it saying, and now what's going to happen to me? Where, who's going to look after me? Who's going to help me? How am I going to sort myself out? So yes, I would argue very strongly, the state has positive obligations to victims. One of them is that crimes should be uh, in the criminal law and dealt with through the criminal law, but there are other obligations to make right the wrong that's been done, to deal with the harm, and to provide the services that will help the person to recover. And I personally would definitely balance those two as equal, because at the end of it, there's a human being that has been harmed, and what happens to that person should be as central as what happens to the conviction rates. And how are you going to measure the success in that, in that separate area of aside from conviction rates? I think it's a very good question to ask how we measure, because I think at the moment we've been, our measuring has been skewed far too much into looking at what happens in the courtroom, and we have had no measure. I don't think there's any measure which asks the victims, how were you treated, how have you looked after, what happened to you? We have recommended that when the inspector of police and the inspector of the prosecution service do their next inspection, they shouldn't just look at files of how cases were dealt with, they should talk to people and ask them how they were dealt with and whether the police not only dealt with the report right but also put them in touch with agencies that could help them and ensure that their other problems were sorted out. And if we get a more rounded picture, then I think we'll be doing much better. Report author Baroness Stern talking to The Guardian's Rachel Williams. Elsewhere on The Guardian website today, residents in Corby in Northamptonshire, where the local council was found negligent in exposing pregnant women to toxic waste, are in a fury over fresh plans to dump radioactive waste in landfill. More at guardian.co.uk slash UK. First came Jihad Jane, now another blonde Westerner, Jihad Jamie, gets caught up in an Islamic murder plot. That's at guardian.co.uk slash world. And how aware are you of your brain? Boffins at University College London have been asking how audiences process noise and are influenced by their ears. Helicopter noise in a play that I directed a couple of years ago called Fallujah. Um, it wasn't that the helicopter sounded real. I mean, that was, that was helpful. But that's not why people were ducking. People were ducking because we were able to travel the sound of the helicopter across the space from one end to the other. Um, so you had that effect of something that, that would happen in reality happening within the space. But it was the movement of the sound that caused people to duck rather than the nature of it. And we accomplished the same thing with things like gunshots. So we've all heard gunshots in films and unless you get a sort of surprise element, it's nothing unusual at all and we, we accept it as normal. What we did in the play was to have the sound of the bullet travelling across a speaker system from one end of the room to the other and then the ricochet as it hit something that was visual, that was, that was visible. And that was tremendous, that became really quite alarming for people because again it was a travelling sound and obviously a bullet travels so quickly that there's no time to think is it real or isn't, people just duck. Theatre director Jonathan Holmes and you can hear the whole of that piece on today's Science Weekly. That's to be found at guardian.co.uk slash audio. Next, two snouts in the trough, and this time we're not talking about politicians. The piggy reference is how university vice-chancellors have been described by the General Secretary of the Electors' Union, Sally Hunt. She's responding to a Guardian inquiry into the wages of top British academics. More than 80 university heads, or vice-chancellors, 
earn more than the Prime Minister. 19 get more than £300,000 a year, with the highest paid making do with almost half a million pounds. The man behind the inquiry is The Guardian's investigations executive editor, David Lee. When you ask the universities why on earth vice-chancellors and top staff have had such huge pay rises, they generally come up with some variation on it's very complicated running a university and we have to compete for the best staff all over the world. Uh, And some of them say, well, we've got bigger, we've got more students than we used to have and things like that. I think the critics are going to regard all this as excuses rather than explanations. Let's get into some of the details then. What figures are we talking? There are thousands and thousands, literally, of top academics who are now getting paid more than 100,000 a year. I'm not talking about sort of ordinary professors and lecturers who I think get, you know, up to maybe 50,000, 55,000. But this is the, the administrators and it's the medical consultants and it's the vice chancellors, people like that. The highest, oddly enough, is the London Business School, who pays their vice chancellor 474,000. But Oxford and others in the top eight that we've identified, such as Liverpool, Bristol, the three top London universities, they're paying their vice chancellors more than 300,000 a year. And of course, this is a lot more than the prime minister gets. In fact, when we looked at it, we found no more, fewer than 80 vice chancellors who get paid more than the prime minister. And as you mentioned, it's not just vice chancellors. Oxford's fund manager, for example, earns £580,000 a year. She does. Well, they say she comes from the world of finance. They want her to manage their endowment fund, and that's what you have to pay to get them. And this is often the line. They say, we have to pay this money to get the good staff. And of course, with the explosion in the number of universities, there's now quite a lot of vice-chancellor positions. So maybe they all are competing with each other. And are these the same vice-chancellors who recently surveyed, two-thirds of them, said that they should be allowed to charge 5000 a year in tuition fees compared to the current cap of 3000 Yes, and that's exactly the point. I think that students and their representatives are already muttering resentfully about this because, of course, it's not just the taxpayer who's forking out for the, the prosperity of, of these academics. It's also the wretched students who now have to pay more and more in fees every year. And they could leave with a £50,000 debt, couldn't they? They're shouldering big debt burdens. And this is also at a time when we know there are going to be painful cuts in public sector budgets. Yes, it's becoming into focus rather embarrassingly at the moment because at the same time as they turn out to have awarded themselves double or triple salaries over the decade, there is clearly going to be savage cuts in university funding, which is going to mean things like redundancies for junior lecturers. This isn't, is it, a culture of jealousy? It's a question of bafflement, I think. It's very difficult to actually understand why a university vice-chancellor should be able to triple his earnings over the last decade. I don't think people outside are really going to believe the job's become three times more complicated in the last 10 years, and there are only 24 hours in a person's day, no matter how clever they are. I think what lies at the back of all this is they do it because they can. The university set up remuneration committees. They make comparisons with each other, so the average is constantly ratcheted up. And they make comparisons with private organisations, commercial organisations, though, of course, they're completely different because they go bankrupt and you get fired. And at the back of it all, there has been a generous flow of state funding. Some of this money appears to have gone into fattening up the wallets of top academics. Thanks to The Guardian's David Lee. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Orson Welles, reading from the War of the Worlds, broadcast on CBS in 1938. 
The radio drama was so realistic at the time that an estimated two million people were duped into thinking that aliens were attacking the Earth. Why are we reminding you of this? Because this weekend a Russian TV show claimed that the Georgian president Mikhail Saakashvili had been murdered in another Russian invasion of neighbouring Georgia. Many watching thought they were witnessing scenes from a news report, and for up to half an hour people are said to have panicked, believing this was a repeat of the 2008 invasion. The Guardian's Moscow correspondent Luke Harding was one of the many initially duped. Uh, well, it was an absolutely extraordinary story. I was at home in Moscow on Saturday night with a friend from the Associated Press when he got a call saying that Russia had invaded Georgia and that uh, Mikhail Saakashvili, uh, Georgia's pro-Western president, had been killed and murdered. Now, obviously, this was clearly a, a, an enormous story, so I kind of raced upstairs, I logged on. I um, read Russia's Interfax Press Service, which is the uh, Russian Press Association, w- which indeed was carrying this as a newsflash. And at that point, I was thinking, how do I get to Georgia? Where's my flak jacket? Uh, Etc. just absolutely scrambling. And really, within about 20 minutes, it turned out that this story wasn't true. It was a hoax. But it was a pretty serious hoax that had, had spooked not only me, but half of the Georgian population. How come it was taken so seriously if it was from a, a spoof TV programme? Well, Amedi TV is one of three main TV channels um, in Georgia. They screened footage, archive footage of the two, from the 2008 war between Russia and Georgia on their main 8 o'clock bulletin on Saturday. But they felt it very clear that this was a sort of scenario, if you like, rather than the real deal. And, of course, people watching this were absolutely panicked. And what you have to kind of bear in mind is the war with Russia was very recent, August 2008, when Russian tanks really did roll over the mountains and down the valleys of Georgia. And for a moment, for about a week or two weeks, it did look as if they would go all the way to Tbilisi and turn Georgia into some kind of Russian colony or protectorate. And you also have to remember that Vladimir Putin and Dmitry Medvedev are bitterly opposed to Zakishvili. They they think he's an American stooge. And Putin has, has memorably declared that he would like to hang Saakashvili by the balls. So in a sense, while the scenario is daft, it's not totally implausible, which I think is why so many people believed it. Could it reflect a nervousness that it really could happen again then, This uh, the fact that it was taken so seriously? I think that's right. You have to bear in mind that, that Georgia's two rebel provinces of South Ossetia and Abkhazia have now become staging posts for thousands of Russian troops just across the border. So Georgia, even though it's a, it's a good ally of the United States, its military was more or less wiped out two years ago. And so theoretically, a, a Russian invasion would be very easy to do. Whether the Kremlin would want to do it is another matter, but it's also certainly true that there are hawkish elements within the Russian administration who think that the job wasn't actually finished, because I think the feeling, the thinking at the time in August 2008 was that Saakashvili would be removed from power. Now, he's still there, he's stubbornly clinging on, and he says very rude things about the Russian leadership. And one other thing I think you have to bear in mind is that this comes a week after one of Jordan's main opposition leaders, um, a woman called Nina Berjanadze, actually flew to Moscow to meet Vladimir Putin. And so I think it's part of the kind of ongoing struggle between Saakashvili and Georgia's opposition. Mikhail Saakashvili is becoming more and more unpopular. And while I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's kind of the end of the Saakashvili era, I think what we're looking at now is probably the beginning of the end. The Guardian's Luke Harding. Finally, we bring you some culture, as Hadrian's Wall, the ancient northern border of the Russian Empire, is lit up along its 70-plus miles. Around 500 volunteers placed gas-powered beacons from end to end to produce a line of light. 
The spectacle was to mark British Tourism Week, and our northern editor Martin Wainwright was there to bring you a snapshot of the occasion. I'm at um, Steel Rig, overlooking the most spectacular part of the Roman Wall. Three or four miles I can see where the wind sill runs along, and this is a geological feature. The land rears up from England and then drops almost vertically with these cliffs, and the beacons are going to... I think they'll be lit any any moment now. We should be seeing the first beacon over on the far hillside, which is called Sewing Shields, where the wall marches up from Craglock, a lake that uh, lies just below these cliffs. The lighting of the beacons has already started um, way over to the east um, at Segnagundum Fort, at what's now Wall's End. Uh, Wall's End, uh, named for obvious reasons. And so the line of light is already on its way here. The beacons are at... Um, quarter mile intervals and they're being lit in a sequence so rather like the armada beacons um, when one is lit there's a couple of seconds and then they light the next one and so the line of light marches across the line of the Hadrian's Wall and the uh, long distance Hadrian's Wall footpath. What you've got here is is truly spectacular isn't it this the wind sill they call it don't they this sudden escarpment where it drops away. Yeah it's it's absolutely beautiful and Mm. as you see very raw very um, unspoilt and, and, and it's a kind of it's a view you just could never get tired of in both directions, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I work in Newcastle. By the time I'm halfway home, any stress of the day is gone because you you drive into this and it's never the same journey twice. And, and what do you think about this idea of lighting it up? Really good, good for the local area. Any advert for this area, it's fantastic. Yeah, because it, it, well, it needs it, I guess, with the recession and everything. Yeah. The more people can be brought here, the better. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they'll probably take more this weekend than they will. Most of the year. Couldn't move in Hot Whistle this morning, yes, it was really busy. It's all good for local business. And I'm, I'm, I'm with a couple from the Netherlands, and I'm sorry you can't see them because they're both magnificent. Matthias, in particular, has got the Roman legionary's helmet with the kind of horsehair plume at the top, I think, horsehair. and a red cloak and armour and leggings and boots and a sword. <laughs> <laughs> and Jan, you're, you're um, underdressed by comparison. I'm his slave girl, so oh, right. I'm not going to look that pretty. So. <laughs> you're wearing a maroon um, gown and a dress and you've got a little purse. And, and you're, you're reenactors, aren't you? Yes, what what does that involve? Well, we uh, try to uh, bring Roman history back to life. And to do that, we just dress up like the Romans did. There's lots of people here and they're all uh, enjoying it, uh, reinforced by tea and burgers. It's very cold. The sun's just gone down, but... Um, I say the sun's gone down, the sun's set, but there's still plenty of light. And it's that kind of beautiful time when... Dusk is turning into twilight. Um, the sky is lovely. We were told it would be cloudy, but actually it's a mixed sky. There's plenty of clear sky, but also clouds which are tinted pink by the setting sun. There must be five or six, seven hundred people just at this viewpoint alone, all waiting for the lights to come. There's a light gone on now over at Sewing Shields. Whether it's just one, it's hard to tell at this stage. Oh, there's one gone on. Ah, here they go. Ah, they're just lighting now. There's two gone on. One went off early at the bottom, but uh, there's one on top of sewing shields now and one halfway down. The Guardian's Martin Wainwright among the ramparts of Hadrian's Wall. And there are plenty of pictures for you to admire online at guardian.co.uk slash culture. That's it for today's podcast. Producing today, Ian Chambers and Tim Maybe. I'm Mike Duran. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.